Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll discuss the statistics and treatment of teen suicide and depression. You know, they're being faced with um, greater social and emotional demands that are um, pretty tricky figuring out, you know, how to how to effectively deal with those. Plus, we'll focus on care from a patient's point of view. You know, people want that empathy and that compassion back in healthcare. Um, more than getting to the right diagnosis, people want to feel cared for while they're being cared for. And we'll learn how vitamins and herbal supplements can interact with your other medications. I would strongly encourage people that write down the list of medications that they're on to include every vitamin they take, every mineral that they take. We'll get a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we'll explore patient satisfaction in a hospital setting, plus the truth about vitamin and herbal supplements. But first, teen suicide and what you need to know. Well, teen suicide is on the rise in this country, and now, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, it's just as likely for middle school students to die from suicide as from traffic accidents. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. James Deemer. He's assistant professor of psychiatry specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry, and he's the director of the Child Psychiatry Fellowship at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Deemer. Thanks so much for coming in. Well, thanks for inviting me. So, young adolescents are more prone to suicide today. Tell us about that. Yeah, so in, in general, um, the... Uh, Prevalence of suicide attempts tends to increase from young childhood through adolescence um, and then ultimately reaching adult levels in late teens. And I think the reason for that um, has to do to some degree with uh, normal brain development. And so uh, normally the brain is continuing to develop um, until the mid-20s. And adolescence in particular is a time where the front parts of the brain, the thinking parts of the brain, the parts of the brain that kind of put the brakes on impulses and help us to problem solve, they're still kind of under construction. While the deeper parts of the brain or those parts of the brain that give us those drives, those are the most at their most excitable state. So during adolescence, it's kind of from a physiologic standpoint, um, it's a risk, it's a time of risk because it's a time where adolescents have lots of strong drives and, and they emotions. Don't have, yes. And they don't have the braking system there sometimes to stop and think about what they want to do about those emotions or choices that they want to make. But in general, has, has, the, has the tendency towards teen suicide gone up in this country? I mean, are we really seeing a, a pre increased prevalence? Yeah, if you look, actually, since the 1950s, there, there's been an increase in the prevalence of, of suicide attempts. Not now to the point where, um, you know, high school students, about there's about an 8%, um, about 8% of high schoolers will attempt suicide um, if you were to look um, over a year period. 
And that's up since in even the, the early part of this decade, I mean, basically. Yeah, it, it's fluctuated through, um, I think it tends to fluctuate with time. What do you think, you know, the forces, I mean, obviously the immediate response to that kind of a statistic would be, so why now? I mean, why has this continued to increase? And, and I, obviously you mentioned in terms of the general development of the individual that Teen, eight, the teen years are the most susceptible to this kind of behavior. But why this overall increase? I mean, what forces do you think currently are playing a role? I think in general, the demands that are placed on our, our developing youth just continue to increase so that a, a lot of the um, circumstances and things that kids are exposed to that maybe we were exposed to at a much young, uh, older age where we were more prepared to kind of digest and process those issues, they're, you know, they're being faced with um, greater social and emotional demands that are um, pretty tricky figuring out, you know, how to how to effectively deal with those. And physiologically, aren't kids entering puberty earlier? I know it, there's been some statistics that suggest that g young girls, for example, are en entering puberty at an earlier rate than they did perhaps two or three decades ago. Yeah, I think there is a, a trend towards that. And, and also, I, I think that the chronological age of our youth now you'll run into kids who are 12, 13 years old, and, and you'll be thinking, wow, this, this youngster really is exposed to and talking about things in a, a lot more sophisticated way than in the past. And some of that might have to do with cultural issues such as access to social media and, and, um, and things of that nature as well. So the pressure is on. They may be developing a little bit earlier in some ways, but others not. For example, as you said, the brakes are not necessarily there, but the impulses or the drives are there. And in general, kids are, I think, being asked to grow up a lot sooner on some level. I mean, they're being exposed to all kinds of sexual media information and, and, and that kind of thing. Would you think that's yeah. somewhat... I, I wouldn't want That's wanna... like the milk... Or the 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 environment, the matrix in which kids are are living today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I when I treat adolescents, I think back to what adolescence was like for me, and I I really wouldn't want to go through it again, um, based on some of the demands that are being placed on um, on these children. Just despite that, I really, on a daily basis in my practice, just marvel at the resilience in these um, teens as well as their their uh, family, and so I think the um, the relationship between the teenager and their support system, um, caregivers and family, I think is vital. It's a vital protective factor um, in helping these uh, teenagers to navigate you know, some of the potential pitfalls of adolescence. One of the things I wanted to just ask you, I've been curious about, is this issue of suicide versus this non-suicidal self-injury. Tell us a little bit about that. I know there's been maybe an increase in that kind of behavior as well, cutting, things of that nature. Yeah, so the main difference is what the intent is through the action. So with a suicidal ideation or a suicide attempt, the intent um, is that when the person acts on it, it is to die. Whereas what we call parasuicidal behavior or self-injury, um, the intent isn't to die. Um, often the intent can be... Um, to uh, lessen a state of arousal or to distract one from a more painful um, memory or a painful emotion. And so really the intent of, of the individual, it's, it's more or less a maladaptive attempt. It's an attempt to cope, but it's a maladaptive attempt to cope. Exactly.
Exactly. So um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. James Deemer, and we're talking about teen suicide and the various factors that play a role. So who's most at risk? Tell me about who's most at risk and yes. how you assess that in general. Sure. So when we look at risk factors, uh, we look at predisposing risk factors, which is more or less um, long-standing um, factors that don't change over time, and then precipitating factors, which are more acute changes in the, in the uh, teen's life. So some of the predisposing risk factors could be... Um, a mean the long-standing ones. Yes. A family history of suicide attempts. Um, a history... You mean others than that individual? You mean yes, other people? Yes, within the family. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, a history of sexual abuse or trauma can be a risk factor for some youth. Um, a history of depression, um, anxiety. If you look at from a psychiatric standpoint, which conditions tend to be most comorbid? Um, Go along with suicide. Yeah, depression and anxiety um, tend to be there. Um, in, in the short term, during an assessment, some of the things I look at are hopelessness or sense of pessimism is, is a risk factor um, for um, where, where I get more worried. Or um, How about choice? The idea that a, a child feels that they're, well, as I said, that they're not trapped, that they have some kind of a way of fixing whatever they're experiencing. Yeah, I think to some degree a suicide attempt is an attempt to solve some dilemma that they see as, uh, that they see no way out of otherwise. And so I think, um, you know, um, obviously a suicide, it's a, a tragic event, Um but I think the intent most of the time is, is the person's intent is to relieve some suffering. Um, I, I really get concerned when I see a teenager who seems to be alone in their suffering, where um, they're unable to access anyone else to help them problem solve solutions or to help absorb some of their um, emotional angst. So we think that really kind of that sense of isolation and maybe no way out. Exactly. And then might- might kind of congeal to make that attempt happen. And then you go back to my earlier point about brain development. The parts of the brain that help you to problem solve different ways out of what seems to be an unfixable dilemma, those parts of the brain are just developing. So it's really important. The relationships are so important so that the teenager can then rely on another caregiver, an older person, and kind of borrow some of their good decision-making, some of their wisdom, and if they don't have access to that, that puts them at a very, that puts them at a disadvantage. How do you think the, 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 the emphasis today, though, on social media plays a role? I mean, does it, uh, for example, does it affect girls more than boys? I mean, there's been, it's been, you know, there's been all this in the press about cyberbullying. Tell me what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, so one of the goals developmentally of adolescence is, is to get a sense of identity and a sense of um, kind of firm up a sense of self-esteem and uh, access to media and to people's feedback in a very um, second-by-second way I think um, can can sometimes be damaging to to vulnerable teens who are trying to develop a sense that they're good enough or that they measure up in some way or belong yes exactly and so when they get this immediate feedback from from others around them and during teenage years, that's what has a large part in shaping their, their self-image. It can be very hurtful. And, um, and, and I, I think it really, um, again, thinking back to 
you know, uh, earlier years, it really is just an added um, pressure. Yes, like a wild card in what what feedback or what input they're getting from the, social media. The other thing that strikes me is the public nature of this kind of conversation. You know, if something were to take place on a school bus among a number of catty girls or mean girls, for want of a better term, it was just between them. Now, that kind of conversation quite can be shared with an entire community, sometimes even beyond. So I think the sense of maybe shame or embarrassment or sense of isolation could really be, um, you know, exacerbated. Yeah, Is I that completely your... agree with you. I, I would say uh, of the children I see, the teenagers I see presenting in our emergency room, um, it's become a lot more common for me to go straight to that as a risk factor, to ask what's been going on in social media, because it's become so, it's, it's so prevalent. And, so, um, and I can't tell you the number of times where that seems to play a significant role in that person feeling rejected or embarrassed or shamed in some way. And so I, I would completely agree that it's, it's become um, a real concern. So to, to move from that on to what can be done about it, I mean, I don't mean just social media, I mean about this whole idea of suicide, of teen suicide or even the teen depression that perhaps promotes these kinds of thoughts. I mean, what... What are the signs that people should be aware of, loved ones should be aware of in their teens that would worry them, would worry you, for example, first? And then what do you recommend they do? Yeah. So I think the first thing is, is any assessment or um, it is based on relationship. And so um, if a caregiver, grandparent, mother, father, sibling, um, they, they know that person best. They've, they've grown up with them. And when they sense a change in their... Um, level of interaction with the family or um, the way in which they're expressing themselves. Um, I think it's always good to um, sit down and reconnect with that teenager to check in as to how they're feeling. Um, you know, normalize some of it, not in an accusatory way. Um, I think it's most helpful um, to try to connect with your teen over an activity. Uh, sometimes I find, um, I know lots of parents are um, taxiing their kids to and from activities, the car ride um, can be a nice time to, um, when you're alone with your, your teen, to just strike up a conversation and, um, and they kind of feel less on the spot. And so I think reconnecting and beginning um, that conversation, um, and sometimes you can start it over something more neutral, like um, how things are going at school or what kind of music they like, and then just slowly ease into getting a sense as to encouraging the teen to identify how they're feeling. One would hope that that kind of conversation had been taking place throughout the child's life with the parent to have that kind of normalcy to that kind of conversation. It seems to me in a crisis or in a suspected crisis, it might be a bit harder. I don't want to run out of time. What types, how would you intervene in terms of treatments very briefly and what's available today? So I think the, one of the things we do is we identify if there is another psychiatric condition that's behind the uh, suicidality. So if there is depression or anxiety, we'll, we'll attempt to treat that. And so the vast majority of conditions such as depression and anxiety in child psychiatry, the first line treatment is psychotherapy, an eight week trial of psychotherapy. If the condition, the depression or anxiety is more severe, sometimes you will consider concurrent use of medication. Um, the other thing you really try to do is you try to help the child and the family to problem solve 
ways that they can alleviate some of the demands um, on the youth. And oftentimes that'll be helpful, just starting up that conversation. And, and before we sat down to talk, you mentioned this whole importance of reaching out to your primary care physician. Tell us about that really quickly. Yeah, so I think uh, most of us, our primary care provider has been with us um, throughout life. And so they represent a safe kind of harbor. And so I think with any um, medical concerns, and, and depression is a medical condition, I think reaching out to your primary provider first is a great first step, and then they can serve uh, as an advocate um, to help guide you towards additional resources that might prove helpful. Very, very helpful information. Let's hope we can you know, um, do more to help our kids these days. I really feel for the teens growing up these days. There's a lot of pressure on them, but obviously you have a very keen idea of how to help them, and I want to thank you so much for sharing it with us. My guest has been Dr. James Deemer. He's Assistant Professor of Psychiatry, specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry, and he's also the Director of the Child Psychiatry Fellowship at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Next up, patient satisfaction in a hospital setting. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Very subtle changes can make all the difference to improve a patient's experience while in the hospital, and they aren't even expensive. Here with more on all of this are Amy Sesniak. She's the Chief Experience Officer from the Office of Patient Experience at University Hospital and Upstate Medical University, and Karen Wentworth from the Patient Relations and Guest Services Department at University Hospital and Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for Thank having you. us. So Amy, let me start with you because I think the biggest question that immediately comes to mind is, what do patients want? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. So patients want a human experience. Patients, when they come to us, they want us to treat them like people, not like their diagnosis or what brought them here to upstate. They want to be treated like people. They want us to get to know them. What are their interests outside of here? Nobody is raising their hand saying, I can't wait to be a patient. (laughs) But they need to come to us, and we want them to be comfortable when they're here with us. So it's that human connection that our patients want. So it seems to me like, I mean, obviously the things that come to mind in my mind, Karen, is that people want high quality care, they want safety, they want a good night's sleep, nobody interrupting them, that kind of thing. But it seems to me that there's one thing that I've come across that seems to stand out, and that is communication. Help Help us understand what we mean by that. Yeah, that's very true, Linda. You know, our patients have reported to us in, in feed their feedback. They've, they've told us how important communication is to them. And, you know, we're an educational institution, and we go, you know, we're a medical institution. We have a lot of residents going in and out of the rooms, a lot of physicians. And oftentimes um, we need to slow down a little bit and really stop and talk to our patients. And so that communication piece about their care and treatment is very important to them. So when we say communication, either of you, Amy or Karen, 
I mean, is it a certain type of communication? Is it a way of communicating? Is it is it specific information? What you know, communication is a very broad term, but clearly, as you said, has been something that's come up over and over and over again when you ask a patient what they want. So let's put a little more detail into that, Amy. What do you think they mean, or what sure. are they meaning? I think it's different for every person we serve. So we serve such a diverse population of, of patients that I think for some people, they want the very granular details of what's happening with their care. For other people, they want sort of the broad, you know, give me the basics of what's happening. I think what we see consistently amongst the people we serve is they want to know who's in charge of their care, aside from themselves. You know, our patients are really the, the quarterback of their care, but they want to know sort of who's the lead um, physician who's the lead provider and um, how do we get them um, well so they can leave us because the first question everybody asks when they're admitted is when can I go home? <laughs> <laughs> I understand I can relate. It, it seems to me also that there's probably a desire for um, patients to have healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, residents, whatever, to communicate at a level they can understand. I mean Karen it seems to me if they if people are using jargon or they're very laconic, meaning they don't talk to them when they come in or the nurses don't explain, I'm about to do this and look them in the eye, this might hurt a bit kind of thing, that people feel, as you mentioned, Amy, almost dehumanized in that experience. Is that, is, Karen, has that been your yes, experience Yes, our patients well? do tell us that they, they, when the doctors come in the room, the physicians, whoever the, whoever the healthcare provider is, that they want them to introduce themselves, they want them to tell them what's happening and, and how. Um, and we want to encourage our patients to ask those questions if they're not being answered. How about things like empathy? Sure, sure. <laughs> so, um, Empathy and compassion are the things that, you know, when we talk about what's Upstate specifically focusing on, um, what's been sort of our strategic plan and focus for 2017, where are we heading, um, you know, this next year when we think about um, the different uh, initiatives with regards to patient experience. You know, people want that empathy and that compassion back in healthcare. Um, more than getting to the right diagnosis, people want to feel cared for while they're being cared for. Yeah. And obviously there must be a feeling excuse me, that there's been some lack in that, not specifically here at Upstate, but throughout the whole medical field. We've become so technical, and technology advances have been wonderful with regards to patient safety. But what they've done is they've moved the nurse further and further from the bedside. So my background before I worked in patient experience was nursing. Nursing 17 years ago was very different. Everything was on paper. We did the nightly back rub. We did a lot of things to really be connected and to share sacred moments with patients. Nurses of today are computer-driven, and everything is scanned, and everything is barcoded. And so there's that computer that sits between the patient and the nurse to keep them safe. So, you know, there's lots of positives to the technology. But what it's done is it's, it's really moved nurses away from that human touch and connection. So I think that's a crucial point. Yeah. And I'm so glad for you to raise it because it strikes me that we're so data-driven, as Correct. you said, and we're so preoccupied with data <laughs> that sometimes we lose track of that, you know, the glint in the eye or the sadness in the eye of the patient. If we're so fixed on our computer screen, we may, an individual healthcare provider may never even look up to look in the eye of the patient. Mm -hmm. So clearly, obviously, you're getting that feedback. So I guess 
how do you try to figure this out? I mean, going back to data, I've just kind of kiboshed data, but on the other hand, data is also the resource through which you can make improvements. What is going on currently here at Upstate or even nationally in terms of an attempt to look at elements of patient satisfaction? Are there actual surveys being done, for example? Yes, absolutely. Um, so HCAPS is the government uh, survey that is standardized across the country. So patients who are seen in Florida are measured the same as patients who are seen at Upstate. Uh, every organization that has this survey is required by the government, and they also have a vendor that they use. So we use Prescani at SUNY Upstate, and we measure patient experience not only through these formal surveys that patients may or may not receive post-discharge. We also have some homegrown surveys. In the survey, there's the opportunity for patients to write comments. We look at those comments every week. Those comments are shared with key people across the organization. We take a lot from those comments. We get floods and floods of letters from patients telling us how pleased they are with the care at Upstate. Those compliments are also used to measure patient experience. Likewise, we do get complaints from the people we serve, and Karen's office specifically is the one who manages those complaints and grievances. And those are used as a way to, if we see a trend, what can we do? And we take every complaint seriously. We take every complaint as an opportunity to make it better for the next individual that we serve. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with patient satisfaction experts, Amy Sesniak and Karen Wentworth. We're talking about what hospitalized patients want and need. Well, getting to need, um, Amy, we were talking earlier about this whole idea of how a patient, of, of the idea that the patient is their own quarterback, you use that phrase. So. What do they need to know before, if they, if they were to become a patient, what would you like them to know before actually entering these doors? Well, you know, above and beyond, we, we recognize that um, a hospital stay is necessary, and we understand that patients don't want to be here. But we also know that it's important to prepare yourself for your hospital stay. So the best thing patients can do in families when they consider coming to a hospital and when they need to come to a hospital is first and foremost, be honest. Your nurses and doctors, believe me, they have heard it all. So be honest with them. Don't be shy about your clinical history. Don't be embarrassed about concerns you have. There is no oversharing when it comes to your care and treatment. So please be honest when you come to see us. Don't be afraid to ask questions about the care and treatment you're receiving. Um, questions could be things such as tests you're receiving, the devices being used during those tests, or even why the procedure is necessary. These are all conversations that we want to encourage our patients to have with the healthcare provider while they're in the hospital. It's always in their best interest to understand what's happening to them and will ultimately help improve the chances of them having a more positive stay. It strikes me though, a patient might be more shy, intimidated, or maybe unable to um, ask some of, some of the honest questions that you're talking about. For example, like what are the risks of this treatment that you're giving me right now? Or, um, you know, how, what's the success rate of this treatment kind of thing, but you're encouraging people to ask those. And to whom would they ask? Would they ask the nurse? Would they ask the, the resident coming through? Does it matter who they ask? 
It does not matter. We encourage all of our staff to be available to our patients to answer any questions. And if they don't have those answers, they go to the provider who has them and gets them for them. So how about this? What other things are part of this preparation for the patient? What else would you advise them to be able to do? Sure. I would advise them to bring their records, uh, personal medication history, family, family's clinical history, um, a list of medications. We don't want you to bring your actual pills in, but a list of what you take would be great. Um, as well as um, questions you may have, you know, write your questions down before you come in so that you can just be that, you know, that Girl Scout, take that Girl Scout approach to coming to the hospital. So you want people to be prepared. And in a sense, you're saying you want them to take control of their hospitalization to a point, obviously, but you want them to also be respectful and polite, but, but engage, be a party to their care. Is that Absolutely. Is that? We want the patient to remember they're the most important person in this process. If they're not happy with any aspect of their care, whether it's clinically related or an ancillary service we provide, such as environmental services or nutritional services, if their food isn't great, we need to know. Um, and, and they have a right to request certain things, um, such as adjustment of temperature in their room. Um, so any of these things and anything else they need, we do encourage families uh, and, their, and the patients as well to, to let us know before they leave. Now, you've both been involved at this for quite a bit of time. And, and Amy, you came from a nursing background, so you have a, a, a unique perspective on all of this. I guess the question I have is how, how have these inquiries that you've engaged in, not only you but going now on a national level, how has that improved or added to improvements in the patient experience from what you've observed? Well, through the years, there's been a shift in the focus. And I think um, for all of the right and wrong reasons, these um, government-mandated surveys are also tied to hospital reimbursement. So there's something very uh, serious behind patient experience. Now, I hate that this is how we're focused on it, but I love that we're focused on patient experience and we're getting ourselves back to the basics of caring for people as we care for them. As opposed to doing things on them or to them. Correct. We're really trying to see the whole person. Yes. In a little bit of time we have left, I know that there's a tool in place that Upstate is using called iCare. And it's a tool that's attempting to do what? iCare is a tool to help everyone who works for or partners with Upstate remember the essential elements of a conversation. It's reminding people to introduce themselves to connect with patients, to acknowledge what has been said, to review and educate people throughout their length of stay. So basically, you have a program that really um, stresses all of these important points, and every person who touches a patient really needs to have all of those things in their mind when they're working. They do, and they should. Very little bit of time we have left. How do you think electronic medical records from your standpoint, has played a role one way or another as a nurse? Well, it's improved the quality of care, uh, but like I said before, it's really taken nurses away from um, the bedside because now we have a lot of things we have to keep track of. So it's put the computer between the patient and the nurse, but it really has improved the safety. And How about shortening of, of hospital stays? How has that played a role? 
Well, uh, just like nobody, <laughs> patients don't want to be here either. So shortening hospital stays is really a great way to get people home. And really, there's a lot of things we can do for people from home. And uh, moving care back to physician offices and things like that has been a great so help. So you've seen that as really mm -hmm. a positive overall and not necessarily Absolutely. kind of shunning out. Well, I want to thank you both for coming in and sharing all of this with us. My guest has been Amy Sesniak. She's the Chief Experience Officer from the Office of Patient Experience from University Hospital and Upstate Medical University, and Karen Wentworth from the Patient Relations and Guest Services Department at University Hospital and Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Next, the truth about vitamins and herbal supplements. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. These days, almost 20% of Americans currently take some type of herbal or non-herbal supplement. But supplements aren't held to the same standards as FDA-approved drugs, and the evidence indicates that few are effective, many are useless, and others may be harmful. Here to help us navigate all of this is Michelle Kaliva. She's a registered nurse and the administrative director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's begin with this idea of herbal supplements. I mean, so many Americans are taking all of this. As a matter of fact, I read somewhere that it's a $37 billion industry in the United States. And I also mentioned that 60% of women are taking supplements regularly. Um, but the research, obviously, is not suggesting their efficacy. So I thought we'd start by talking about herbal supplements. First of all, the definition. What is an herbal supplement? So it's a fairly broad definition. It includes leafy plants uh, primarily, but people also talk about herbal medication and, and use it, the term as alternative medications. That's another um, pretty common term. Or, or it's a natural product. There's a, there's a real sense that, that these products are safe because they grow in the ground. They're natural. There's no additives. There's no chemicals to them. And they come in things like tablets, capsules, powders, extracts, teas, a whole variety of things. So if they're natural, what's the problem with taking them? Well, they, there are chemical compounds within the product. So, for example, uh, a little, little deviation to this, but the plant foxglove. It's a plant. People don't take foxglove, but it has digitalis in it. Digitalis is what's used to make digoxin, cardiac medication. So if you picked up a, a foxglove plant and ate it, that would be a toxic product. It's natural, it grows in the ground, but it does contain a toxic chemical. Same with all these herbals, variations and concentrations of a whole lot of different chemicals. And also, that often they don't have safety warnings attached to them. I mean, they're not so highly regulated. So we can talk more about the possibility that you're not even getting what you think you're getting when you buy something like this. But the fact is, it's kind of like the Wild West a little bit out there 
when you buy herbal supplements. Yeah, you and I could both go into a store and pick up a, a, a bottle of a product and our products could be completely different in terms of concentration and actually ingredients. The, the product itself may not even be in there. The labeling is not regulated, it's not mandated. And depending on where the product was, the plant was cultivated from, the time of year, the concentrations vary. The other issue to me that I think is really important for people to keep in mind is that the side effects of these drugs and how they may, in may interact with drugs you are already taking that are prescriptions and prescribed by your uh, healthcare provider, mm -hmm. you need to really understand that there may be some serious kinds of issues. And the FDA does not regulate these drugs in any, or we'll call them drugs, but these herbal products in any way. I thought what we would do is start by uh, discussing a few of them just mm -hmm. to give an overview of the kinds of things. How about something like chamomile, which seems like a very um, gentle kind of thing. People always say, let's have some chamomile tea. It'll quiet you down. It'll relax you. It, are, are there issues with it? Sure. So whether it does all of that is certainly still questionable, but people do have allergic reactions to chamomile tea. Again, anytime you're taking a, a plant, there is that, or really any chemical, there's a chance you're going to react to it. People would react to echinacea as well. Echinacea is used to help boost the immune system. People, well, it's said to. Exactly. It is stated to. Yes. No real evidence that it does it, but it is, it's, it's promoted that way. I, you know, you'll hear people say echinacea. It's, I'll take it as soon as I have the start of a cold and I'm fine. But reality is people have allergic reactions to echinacea. It might be, Especially if they're allergic to things. I think these, both those, those chamomile and echinacea are related to ragweed mm -hmm. and, and other things that could elicit an allergic reaction. Everything from sneezing, itchy nose, to difficulty breathing and, and hives. So take you need to take it with, with some caution. Make sure you're not allergic. I want to just take a sidebar here and talk about when people kind of become, um, you know, an advocate for taking these kinds of things. What we don't really know is this whole notion of the placebo effect. In other words, you think this is supposed to help you in a certain direction, and because you think it's supposed to help you, you may actually experience some relief or some the, the touted reason for taking it. But obviously, data to this at, at this point is is thin in terms of it really being effective. Absolutely, is that the, the power of positive research. thinking is wonderful, but yes, in terms of hardcore evidence-based research, it's not there. How about ginseng? Because that's another one that's often been talked about as a remedy from everything from colds to fatigue and even to memory loss. Yep, and, and stress as well. You can have an increase in heart rate, increase in blood pressure. I'd be very cautious if I was um, an individual that was being treated for hypertension, for high blood pressure, for tachycardia, because this drug, this chem, I shouldn't say drug again, this medication, this herbal preparation can actually cause something called a ginseng syndrome, which is agitation, increase in blood pressure. You're very, very hyper, unanticipated, I'm sure, from the average user of this product, but it, it happens. And they might not even link it to that. Exactly. The other thing I noticed with ginseng was that it can interact with aspirin and the anti-clotting agent, Coumadin. Yep. So that's something to be aware of if you're on that kind of medication. How about ginkgo biloba? Right, so people are, are really promoting this for Alzheimer's disease, but again, that drug, is, that product as well can cause an anticoagulation uh, interaction. There's a lot of agents out there that if you are on Coumadin, you really need to avoid, uh, including a garlic. 
garlic supplement will do the same thing. It will take your um, the the effects that you get from the Coumadin and potentiate it, and you could end up having real significant bleeding disorder. So, in fact, it may not only interfere with it; it may exacerbate yep. it or amplify yes. the effect, and therefore you need to know that. Ginkgo does that as well. How about St. John's wort? For a long time, and when all the SSRIs came out and everybody was saying, you know, if you want an antidepressive, you need a medication, people would turn to this so-called herbal sub, uh, substitute for it in St. John's wort. Is there evidence for, it, for its efficacy? There is not, but, but probably even more worrisome, it's a, it does have the potential to interact with somebody who is on an SSRI. So you're already on an antidepressant and you take St. John's wort. You could actually cause uh, what's called serotonin syndrome, which is a life-threatening syndrome. Your temperature goes up, your heart rate goes up, you get very agitated. We see that on occasion and, and manage those cases in the poison center. It's a very serious interaction in if somebody is deciding to take St. John's wort, they really need to make sure that they've talked to their prescribing physician about it. One last one here that I want to just run through is green tea. That's something that, again, has been touted as something that's going to save your life, keep you living longer, if it's a fighting cancer. There have been all kinds of claims associated with it. One, is there any proof to it, also to lower cholesterol? It, has there been any you know, documented data to support it? And then what are the potential hazards? So the big thing with green tea, is, again, it sometimes... It's okay, and people take it whether it's eff- effective is limited. There is not the evidence. Is it gonna? Is it gonna be problematic t- taking it in small amounts? Probably not. But there's some potential for some liver damage associated with high quantities. And I hear people talking about large consumption of green tea on a daily basis. That's always worrisome. You really have to moderate how much you take. And I also actually see that that also can affect. Um, your blood clotting if taken in very large doses. Most of them can. The other one is soy. People tend to take uh, a a lot of soy products believing that maybe it's going to help lower cholesterol. It's probably fine, except in postmenopausal women, it has been linked to increasing their likelihood of developing breast cancer. That's a very important comment. Mm If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with drug expert Michelle Kaliva, and we're talking about herbal and vitamin interactions that you need to be aware of. So the bottom line, at least so far with these herbs, is you really need to know what's in them and know what you're taking and maybe discuss it with your healthcare provider and not just see it as, oh, that's kind of you know, non-prescription, off the, you know, uh, over-the-counter kind of thing and, and with no awareness of the fact that it can literally have some negative consequences. Let's get to vitamins because vitamins and supplements, <clears throat> excuse me, they, you know, we know that naturally occurring vitamins and minerals are very important for health, but this whole idea of taking supplements, there haven't been a lot of clinical trials supporting a lot of these. And the most popular one today I want to talk about is calcium. We have looked at calcium a bit, and a lot of women, you know, concerned about things like osteoporosis, will take calcium. And I think that even the recommendations for how much have changed. Tell us about calcium. Both calcium and vitamin D have been touted um, as, as so important. And in, in our diet, they are. And there probably are occasions when a, a physician is going to prescribe both both of them together. Um, 
One, don't you need vitamin you D? Do to you need vitamin D to, to actually have the calcium it. right be absorbed be and absorbed. utilized. Yep. So so physicians will recommend, and there there are occasions when you'll get a blood level that shows that your vitamin D is down, and physicians will do it. But taking those products on your own are dangerous. For example, muscle weakness, muscle pain muscle loss have been associated with high levels of, of both of those vitamins. So again, you think that it's, it's, not, it's going to be safe. You can go buy it in, in any drugstore or herbal um, store, but without physician oversight, you could potentially make the symptoms you think you're treating worse. Yeah, and I saw something that really shocked me is that it, there can actually be an increased risk of heart disease and kidney stones if you take a high amount. It's better to get it from, this is calcium now, yep. it's better to get it from diet rather than the supplements. But what we do know is that it's hard to get vitamin D from diet, and right. it's, it comes from the sun, from your skin exposure, being exposed in, in our climate. Very few of us are out. We don't have much sunshine, right, and exactly. when we do, we're not out without our clothing, you know, much exposure. So in that case, some vitamin D is important. But I think your bottom line here is you need to discuss this with mm -hmm. your health care provider to make sure your levels are right. What about things like glucosamine and chondroitin? Is there any, you know, again, people with, cart you know, like knee problems, they've said it rebuilds cartilage and all of this. Is there any truth to that? Again, very, very limited evidence that those products work. And bottom line, um, I think people take them. Again, we go back to the power of suggestion. They think that works. Very, very little evidence that they are effective. How about omega-3 fatty acids? You know, there was a big push for fish oil. Mm -hmm. You know, take fish oil, live longer yep. kind of thing. I mean, basically, I know if you get your fish oil from natural, from food, from salmon, from things you eat, that makes sense. But how about these capsules? Probably not. It probably is not being absorbed well. And bottom line, if you're eating a healthy, well-balanced diet, you're probably getting a sufficient amount. That's inclusive, again, of, of like salmon. But taking, taking the supplements, it's probably not being absorbed. It's probably not having the effect that the desired effect. So I think... Bottom line here, I just want to keep reiterating, is that because of the potential for interaction, drug-drug interaction, because there's not a lot of data supporting some of these herbal supplements or these vitamin supplements, it's important to actually speak to your healthcare provider before you take these. Just go out to GNC and buy everything that's promising, you know, to give you long life and great memory and all of this kind of thing. One of the biggest mistakes people make when they go to their physician for, a, for an appointment or show up in an emergency room, when they're asked to list their medications and they don't include their, the, anything that they take, whether it's a supplement, a food additive, they really need to include this. So I would strongly encourage people that write down the list of medications that they're on to include every vitamin they take, every mineral that they take, every herbal medication they take, including the name and the dose that they're taking daily. And one of the other things I think that you alluded to earlier, I think is really crucial, is that these are manufactured without scrutiny. And different manufacturers, I think there was some court case that came up where some of the things that they were selling, and I don't have the name of the particular uh, company, it didn't even contain, there were fillers, there wasn't even active ingredients that were purported to be in there. So you don't even know that you're getting what you're supposed to be getting. And you don't know what the fillers are. You don't know what the contaminants are. So you're putting yourself and contaminants. at risk there. Yeah, that's the other thing, mm -hmm. that there are other things put in there that you really have no idea about. Um, very briefly, what about something like energy drinks? That's become kind of the rage of late. 
What's the problem with that? Well, what is the product in it that's causing you to have the energy, to have that stimulation? It's some type of stimulation. It's either going to be a caffeine-based product or it's going to be a plant that causes stimulant effects. Again, if you have increased heart rate and brain and uh, hypertension and you're being treated for it and you take a stimulant, an energy drink, it's just going to make your symptoms worse. People will feel like they're crawling out of their skin. Not regulated. We don't know what they are. They pose a great risk. Well, all of this information is very important, and it strikes me that the bottom line, once again, is A, buyer beware, and secondly, really check with your provider. And as you said so astutely, list, think of all of the things you put in your body in terms of these pills and supplements and whatever as medicine, and list it when you go to your provider. Michelle, once again, thank you so much. You always have such wonderful information. My guest has been Michelle Kaliva. She's a registered nurse, and she's the administrative director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Leah Johnson is a professor at American University in Washington, D.C. She is also a poet, a writer, and a musician, and the co-founder and artistic director of Georgetown's Dunbarton Concert Series. She gave us two poems that illustrate very different aspects of family. The first one is Golden Rule, and it evokes a beautiful image of a father-daughter bond. On his bed of dry ice, my father lay still and silent, window cracked open. We bathed him biblically in lavender water, laid him out, dressed him, tugging his gray slacks over bent knees, buttoning his blue shirt. He had painted his entire house when he was 80, raked 15 bags of leaves from my yard, cleaned my basement, scrubbed and waxed my car, clipped coupons, packed my groceries, washed my dishes, watched my children every New Year's Eve. I had one chance to get this right, and I did. The second poem is called Dolly, and it confronts a much more disturbing aspect of family. Dolly, I don't remember a voice, only his shadow in the doorway, terrible and familiar, as I shrank to the size of a clothespin doll. His shadow in the doorway. Dolly Moo, they laughed as they pinched my cheeks, and I shrank to the size of a clothespin doll among the needlework and the heavy black coffee. Pinched my cheeks on Sunday afternoons on the piazza, Laughing, I slid the bright orange blossoms of trumpet vine over my fingers among the needlework and the heavy black coffee. My grandfather's arm reached out like a tentacle and pulled me onto his lap. I slid the bright orange blossoms of trumpet vine over my fingers, the day unwinding like a spool of thread, my godfather's arm reaching out like a tentacle to pull me onto his lap, his hand sweaty and swollen, the day unwinding like a spool of thread, terrible and familiar, his hand sweaty and swollen. I don't remember a voice.
Thank you for joining us for HealthLink On Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we revisit the status of polio today and post-polio syndrome. Plus, we'll get one survivor's story and how to seek reliable medical information online. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.